Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? We're all just going to be crushed under the weight of, of like, just Life? our lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> our lives. I, I think that's very accurate, you know. <laughs> but on a good note, so um, we came into, this is so crazy how this happens, and I sh- I won't say their names, but um, we, we came, anyway, someone said to us, where are you? Uh, a relative said, where are you? Are you still in the Midwest? Or are you in California? Because we have um we're stakeholders in a company and they said because we sent you a check for eighteen thousand dollars do you would you like to get it <laughs> wait 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 what 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 so so miles just the life is very random life is so random okay so miles on. we we have a stake in a what i believe is a timber company <laughs> is it timber it's timber. So we have timber stocks or something. I Look, remember how you don't know how the stock market works? I don't yeah, know how this yeah. works. There's trees somewhere that I own, which is okay. really sad because who owns the trees? We should I know. own trees. I know. But, but yeah. we do. and um, Or parts of trees, I suppose. We own certain mm-hmm. branches. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, so we just got a, some kind of dividend situation and I just fell on the bed when I heard because that's but, wonderful. But... It, that's amazing but what like is it something that was willed to you yeah and, oh it's so a family it's miles nothing to do with me this is all okay. miles which is interesting because my my mom passed away obviously and she left me some dough and and so i always thought my family was the was the high and mighty family and now miles is stepping in to say he said you didn't marry so bad did you i said oh so does he and he had no no, no idea clue. no clue Oh, and they couldn't find you because they're trying to send it to California. <laughs> oh my God! So wait, so so we you... have a check coming to Oakland. Yay! Um, How exciting! It is exciting. We're going to put it in our prudent reserve, which is our savings. We call our savings prudent reserve. Okay, um, is and... that like a financial term, or is that just what you guys like? I think that's like a, a actually a twelve step term. So we oh. use that. We use that put in the prudent reserve. So we're putting it in the prudent reserve, which is oh, good. So that's not as fun as like you're going to get right. to go buy something that you but want. Yeah. It will mean that, you know, if, if we run into trouble, if I don't, I mean, I'm going to get a gig. We're going to get it. There's going to be money soon. But if I don't, you got to yeah. have a prudent reserve. Peace. You got to have a prudent reserve. I like that term, a prudent reserve. So does that also apply like interpersonally? Like you're supposed to have a prudent yeah. reserve. Oh, okay. It's like a boundaries sort it's of like, thing. It's like boundaries and it's like um, um, make you feel solvent and like you you, mm-hmm. you you can take care of yourself kind of like that you're independently taking care of yourself, self-sufficient. That- that makes so much sense because I think a lot of what drives people's internal panic and hysteria and makes them turn to things like alcohol and drugs is this out of control feeling, this, you know, this feeling of lack of safety. And it's obviously ironic because like, there's nothing that, nothing that makes you safe about taking drugs or drinking, but yeah, people, yeah, that's the, I love that. Well, that's the other thing I, I always think about too with drugs and alcohol and stuff and and whenever so so uh i i would say that you know i have issues with anxiety and whenever i would smoke cigarettes or drink alcohol 
it would make it worse. And yet that's mm-hmm. what I would turn to. And so it is sort mm-hmm. of like maybe we're sabotaging or I was sabotaging to create a crisis so that I could actually deal with the, the root anxiety. I mean, that's what I think uh-huh. because when I have a panic attack, like if I'm on a plane and I, and I hate to fly and I, and I, and I really go for it and give, and I can really participate in my own panic. And if I choose to really go for it and participate and have a full panic attack, the result is always that I have to care for myself at an extreme level. So I become very like, it forces me all hands on deck, internal resources to really care for myself, meaning self-talk, meaning, so it's like, oh, I, and- if I do that on purpose, like on purpose so that I can get the care I need. Because otherwise you feel like it's indulgent and you don't do it. And I don't uh-huh. deserve it. And I think that in my house, just really starting in psychological this morning. But, um, <laughs> uh, at my house, you had to be deathly ill to stay home from school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you had to have a huge crisis in order for my mother and father, but mostly my mom, to pay attention and to say, oh, something's wrong. Dude, that uh, as a parent, I can say I understand why that happens. It's something you really have to like actively work. <clears throat> against because I noticed my kids doing that they they know that certain physical things are certain and so like the trick is always like okay so I right now you're telling me this so I don't want to invalidate it but I know that the reason you're telling me this is because I haven't validated you in some other way and you have to like backtrack and it's it's very hard to do and and yeah and, and because also when people are pressed and busy and whatever it's only the current crisis that takes the attention. And you know, it's so true to to look at like in retrospect and within therapy to look at what my mom was doing. Like she was managing a whole household because my father was inept. I mean, he, he tried, but he was so limited. So she was managing the household, a full-time ass job, two children that were like the same age. And she couldn't ask for help because she was, she felt like this immigrant thing of like, no way you ask for help. So of course she's not going to be like, Hey, how's everybody doing? I'm checking in. Right. <laughs> right. right. So I have always kind of wondered something about your parents' relationship. Your mother was so capable and such a doer. I mean, maybe, th- maybe that's the whole answer. Why, but like, why did she marry somebody who you've referred to, which I love this term as a king baby? Yeah. So he, my dad was like the definition, especially since he was six, six, nine and like 300 pounds. So like, mm-hmm. it's just the king baby. So I think she married him to get out of her family originally to get out of her parents' house. Okay. And she saw him as a capable American, seriously, like a capable white dude and said, no. But that was not who he was, but that's what she projected onto him. I don't think my father was ever like someone who pretended to be something he wasn't. I think she wanted to see that. And then what happened was she really got off on making making him less than. My mom, they did this dance where she felt so great. And I notice I do this with Miles too. Like I feel so, I can feel so self-righteous when I can do something faster or better than he can, that he's, he's staring at me. That's hilarious. <laughs> but 
I, with love, Miles, with, with love. love. With love. Um, but but that that I can do the same thing where it's like, no, I'm the doer. I'm so capable. I'm so mm-hmm. awesome. And and that makes another person less than. And I think in order, my mom sort of felt like in order to feel worthy, she had to make him feel less than worthy. Mm-hmm. Was, was so was, dance. was she kind of a martyr? Yeah. Oh my God. My mother was the martyr of all martyrs. She was like a silent martyr though. So she would be like, you know, uh, muttering under her breath about how she had to do everything, um, muttering about how, oh, which to me, someone who is passive aggressive, it, it, it triggers in me a rage like no other rage. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just be out with it. Just, yeah. Yeah. Passive aggressive is holding people hostage. And I find that so, Hmm. so intolerable. And what's so crazy about it is the person, because I have a passive aggressive streak in me, when you're doing it, you feel that you, you convince yourself that you are prevent, you are um, protecting somebody from your rage when really you're just doing it in the like sneakiest, most underhanded, and therefore the most hard to, um, it's hard to name it, right? Like if somebody comes and slaps you in the face it's like okay well and everybody saw you slapped me in the face this is an act of rage when somebody uh as my mother would say drinks at you (laughs) or 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 does a nice thing for you at you you know with with resentment it's harder it's much harder to tease apart like wait why do if you're doing this nice thing for me why does it feel so bad i had a roommate who was a scorpio so i have a scorpio problem like we were talking about astrology last time and i do notice that scorpio women i have a very hard time with i don't know what it is but it happened to be that in la my second third roommate was a scorpio woman who I found to be the most biting, passive aggressive, cold person. Now I was not in a good place either. So I'm not, but I did not do well with her. She was so passive aggressive that she would do this. This is, and I still clearly have a lot of rage and I would love to let her have it. I never said anything. I would decorate and she would take my stuff down. Oh and my not God. Because she didn't like the way it looked, but she wouldn't Wait, how, but is that passive? Well, she would never say anything about it. So oh. so she so I would put up a mirror that I got in Mexico and I would notice that it would be taken down and put on my bed. Oh and wow. Then, yeah. I I feel like that's not that passive though. I kind of feel like the passive aggressive thing would be I mean, yeah, it, it would have been more truthful for her to just say, like, I really don't like your mirror. But I feel like a more passive aggressive thing would be like if she threw <laughs> threw her body into the wall so that the mirror oh, fell down and then said, yeah. uh, I'm so sorry, but your mirror broke. Yes. And ma- okay. maybe this is just me being like ninja level passive. <laughs> that is really intense because that also can inflict harm on oneself to, to in order to not have to be. Well, what a better what better way is oh there to be God. passive aggressive than to inflict harm on yourself? Maybe she was just aggressive, but she would also she told me about she told me about her pa- her last roommate that she had before or a couple roommates before me where he would never do the dishes, so his dishes, so she stocked stacked them up and put them under his bed. Okay, well see, yeah. Okay, I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's they, they maybe we need a third designation that's psychopath. Like, no, <laughs> like um um 
yeah, yeah snaky aggression surreptitious like, aggression was like 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 like, yeah. sharp, like attacking aggression like um, yeah snaky and but biting it was so she was i gotta say she was horrible and when when i have so much oh i want to write her a letter so bad when i left when my father died and i left la and i and i i she was like, I'm sorry your dad died, but I need to know if you're going to pay rent for the, this was like a oh week after he died. And I said, I yeah. don't give a what you do. Here's the money for the rest of the year. Like leave me a, that kind of thing. And so anyway, the point is she was a Scorpio. And since then I, I do have a, I'm afraid of Scorpio women. Okay. How come you never did feel like you could write her a letter or. I think I was afraid that like the problem was me and that like if I had been stronger or not, um, I thought that I had done something terribly wrong because I, I go into this, Oh, I I'm so, so terrible kind of a thing. At least back then, you know, I was 30 and it was times and things were really bad with my family and stuff. So I, I don't know, but I, I'm, if I ever run into her, it's going to be interesting. Cause she lives, she still lives in the same apartment we lived in with her, oh, hus- oh, her wow. husband and, and um her husband and her and their child. And so she's still there and I'm secretly hoping I run into her so I can just let her have it. Do you, so is that what you want? You want to let her have it yep. versus, okay. Yeah. I just want to let her have it and be like, what in the hell was wrong with you? Yes. Why were you so cold and horrible to me? Like, yeah. and if I would hang a Halloween decoration beans, she would say, well, I might not have done it that way. I might have done it this way. Oh my God. So and she, it probably it probably didn't even track with like she didn't actually like it. It was probably just anything that you anything whatever put up there. She wanted yeah. to live alone, so she needed to live alone and do her own thing. She didn't need a roommate. Oh, she she oh. hate she hated all roommates apparently. So, but I, I anyway, uh, she I, needed it financially, and so then she just sort of took it out so, on you. She yeah. acted out. So, thus, the passive aggressive <laughs> slash really snaky aggressive. Yeah, we got to think about what that third term could be, because there is like a middle ground between, because the thing about really good meeting, artful, whatever, passive aggression is it can take a long time to realize. Mm -hmm. And and it took me a lot. I have a person in my life who's extremely passive aggressive. And And what would happen for years is like, this person is doing and saying things that seem like they should be positive, but it always has the effect of making me feel terrible. That is a real, that is the art form at its finest. Yes, you are. You are right. Yes. And so it took a great number of years for me to be like, okay, I'm not crazy. When I feel bad, when this person does this, it's not because I like just don't want to accept anything from them or I don't want to find any good in them because I actually really like finding the good in people. And I prefer to have relationships with people that, that are po- positive and friendly. Yeah. It's, and it, it and it's, it's, it, it, you, you just know it when you feel it, you just get around a certain type of person and you're like, huh, this feeling is familiar. You're ha- handing me a plate of cookies, but it feels like what you're saying is, why don't you eat some more cookies, fatso? Yeah, right, right. It's that is, I think that's, I mean, that, that are the, the people that are the most sort of um, adept and really um, good at that are borderline people, right? Or no? 
or yeah. narcissists or something. Yeah. So it's like, and I yeah. think this woman that was just straight up cold and mean, and she was more of a surgical strike, mm-hmm. passive aggressive. And it, it was very clear when it happened. She was obvious about it. And what you're mm-hmm. talking about is a real subtle sort of pathology of like. I'm talking about the kind of thing that you say to your friend, let me run this by you. And you yes. tell them and they go, well, that sounds, I mean, that sounds nice. That doesn't, or that, that sounds oh. neutral. No, like, no one yeah. can even validate it. Oh, Dude, no. I spent so many years being like, it's me. It's just me. There's something wrong with me. I cannot accept this person's love. But it was like clockwork. Every time I interacted with this person, it was the same exact feeling of like, you're, t-. or sometimes not. Sometimes the feeling would be like, oh, okay. Actually, what it would often be is, I'd, I'd be dreading having an interaction and then I'd have the interaction and it would be lovely. And I'd say to myself, you asshole, why, what's wrong with you? Why, why have you been, you know, in your mind, like really berating this person or criticizing them? And it, that it would go on like that for a bit and then it would turn and then I would start to feel bad again. And I'd be like, okay, this is that old familiar feeling. But then oftentimes, I only had one other person in my life who who saw what I saw. Um, but mostly people were like, I, Gina, I think it's just, you know, I think it's just, I think this person is being, I think this person is trying to show you they care. I think this, and it never felt that way. And I, it took I'm going to say 20 years to get vindicated (laughs) (laughs) for at least one other person to say, Oh yeah, you're right. That's, 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 that's not good. That's not good. Wow. That's an expert. That is a unlocked expert level. And that's, that's why it's hard for me to identify a lot of things as passive because I'm like, Oh no, no, no. I, I know the master of this. What you're talking about is just, an asshole barely concealed right assholery right assholery yeah oh my gosh that is that (sighs) is some crazy sick shit yeah and and that is some like slow poisoning when people slow poison people you Uh know in true crime i watch a lot of that blue prussian is a prussian blue is a is a kind of um poison i just watched a, a special on it um where it takes forever to kill someone but it's debilitating and long term mm. oh and you got to be a special kind of person to kill someone that way dude did you did you get into the mommy dead and dearest documentary no what is that oh m g i don't i've never even heard of that okay it's it's a it was a case of munchausen's by proxy this woman was um had her daughter in a wheelchair, had her uh, getting chemotherapy. This is the part that I don't really understand. I don't understand how this person convinced doctors that her daughter had chemotherapy and needed radiation when she didn't have cancer. I think, I think that's what she did. She, if it wasn't that, it was like a close, just a host of, I want to say like surgeries and medical interventions and told this daughter that she had this daughter believe that she couldn't walk and i wish i i wish it was more fresh in my mind did they make a movie about it with patricia arquette i don't know i saw a documentary about they might have made a movie about it with patricia um because what ended up happening is the daughter 
I think I think became online friends with a boy who became her boyfriend who came to visit her in real life and and the two of them together figured out that this was all a lie and they killed oh, yeah. her mother. So they made a movie of it with Patricia Arquette as the mom and I didn't see that either but it's supposedly so they kill her. They they yes. got pissed. She'd be in jail right now for that. She'd be in jail. But she fig- she's figured it all out, this daughter. She's fig- her name is something like Rose. George, yeah, Rosie. Georgia Rose or something. Yeah, Rose G- or- Gypsy. Gypsy Rose. Gypsy oh Rose. Which is another crazy thing about Gypsy Rose Lee. But anyway, uh, yeah, she's still in jail. She's going to get out. And she's, and it's all, I mean, oh, uh, the heartbreak of all heartbreaks to to find out that your mother is trying to kill you by making one making you so crazy. that she could have special treatment because it's the reason that people do that is that they get special treatment for being the caregiver she had all these like uh uh, uh you know make a wish foundation they they got to whatever go behind the scenes at disney or meet brad pitt or whatever it was I mean, it's so sad. And so then you want to go back and be like, okay, but what happened to her that made her right. feel that this was the only way that she could get love? We need a real flashback scene in there. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. She, that is, oh my. Yeah. Oh, you got to watch it. Mommy Dead and Dearest, it's called. I'm sure you okay. can see it on YouTube. I will watch it. And you never watched the Paris Hilton one, right? No, oh, she's too skinny. <sighs> Yeah. Okay. She's too skinny. And then I watched the uh, Britney Spears. Yes. Yes. Right. It was only an hour long. Yeah. Um, frame. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Uh, I'm not totally. I don't. I'm. I'm not taking sides in that because we don't. We can't know what she was going through. You know, in terms of her mental health. I mean, both things could be true. She could be be uh, quite mental ill, mentally ill, and need. Uh, a conservator and her dad could be trying to cheat her out of money. Well, that's what I think went on. And I, that happened in Amy Winehouse's case too, where her dad was a scumbucket and she was out of control. So I think, I think it's an and situation with Brittany as well. Now, now is there sexism and weirdness involved? Yes. And is it like if, if she was a boy would that have, I don't know, but I can definitely say that there was, I remember when she did the whole shave her head and beat a car with an umbrella and thinking to myself in LA, I lived in LA at the time, I think. And I was like, Oh, she's, she's very mentally ill. She's um, very mentally ill. There, there's, there's, there's... Hey, let me run this by you. Well, one one of the things that you hear people say in situations like that a lot is, and they just had a medicated to the gills, and you know, there's this aspersion that gets cast about taking medication, and it seems to extend even to people who are so obviously in great need of taking medication, and there's this um, group uh, uh, consciousness aware, or I guess it's not really consciousness, but it. Think, it thinks it's group consciousness about taking met like yeah, it's a group like delusion that, it's a group delusion that the that the goal in life no matter what your problem is is to not take meds and at first i thought okay well this is just because people are anti psychiatry but it's something more than that because it's like 
what what is the problem with taking meds? Like I can understand it if it's you don't want to take too many meds. If you have liver problems, you you know it's hard on your liver to take meds. But like for your average person, what's the I don't get what the downside is. And there is, I I totally agree. And there is, especially since being on a heart med, people are like, well, will you get off the meds? And I'm like, let let me explain something to you. I don't give a shit if I ever get off the meds. The meds are helping my heart. Are are you you even talking? As if it's a weakness to be on a med. And it's like, well, if you lose enough weight, you can get off your blood pressure meds, which, okay, that's fine. But you may still be skinny as hell and have high blood pressure. So then you're on your med. And then what do you do? Then you feel terrible that you, you know, you tried everything and you still on the blood pressure medication or like... I, I, it's, there's a, such a judgment about medication. It's really, there is such a judgment about it. And, 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 and I want to say like, okay, well, we know what it's like when there's no meds that, that, that was like, you know, 150 years ago and people just died. People right. like you who had a, an, a, an event or an incident or whatever, right. they just died, right. <laughs> you know, and, and people probably didn't even know what, what, what the cause of death was. Right. Thir- our age right now, 45, was considered like Old-ish. you know, old. Yeah. Um, the other thing is like I find that a lot of the people who are anti-meds um are really pro supplements <laughs> and stuff like this. And it's like, okay, but that you're just taking something for your that's the same thing that you say that you're against. Because there's a, it must be a whole consumerism and a a thing where supplements is good, meds bad. And like Mm -hmm. supplements can kill you. My doctor was telling me that like you can overdose so easily on a lot of these supplements and and some Chinese herbs too. Mm -hmm. People are like, it's just a Chinese herb. And they're like, yeah, but you take it in mass quantities and your heart's going to stop. And it's an upper or whatever it is. Herbs are, so I know, you know, people that refuse to take an ibuprofen but medicate the hell out of themselves with melatonin and weed now Mm -hmm, listen mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you're mixing things you're but they will say but it's natural i'm like you're gonna die a natural death which is a death from too much melatonin and too much weed so is that what you want on your tombstone she died a natural death of melatonin and weed but that's what it is it does seem to be a like a contest it must tie into this whole frontier and American pull yourself up. Like, I think it must be the bootstraps phenomenon that people say, well, you, you know, you're, you're only really winning at life if you're healthy and happy and sane and balanced and you didn't have to take a pill to get there. Yeah. And, and you live to 104 and you, you without medication and, you know, and, but then we, at the same time, we really applaud, there's something in the American spirit too, that applauds 104 year olds that say, oh, I, I got this old by drinking and by drinking right. and smoking cigarettes and take and smoking cigars and drinking tequila. And then we're like, yeah. that's awesome. Dude, it's just genetics. I mean, that, that, you know, that, that's like the answer. The answer to some of these things is talking to people who who have these wacko points of view it's like okay but you don't understand science so if you understood science you wouldn't have this point of view a and b it's just genetics you're fat you're ugly you have heart problems you have uh, uh diabetes you have it it's just your genetics it's not your fault you, you right. were born and, this and way my doctors i i really loved how they were like 
I said, like, look, if I were really skinny, would this be happening? And they're like, probably. But, you know, it can't help to lose weight because we should all be around, you know, America's too too fat for our organs. But yeah. so, but they weren't shaming in any way. So I think doctors are starting to get it where it's like the shame doesn't even work. And so they're mm-hmm. like, a lot of it's genetics. That's what he said. He was yeah. like, you know, your dad had arrhythmia. Okay. Your mom was anxious and probably had, you know, issues of, okay. Yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. anyway, that makes you feel better because when, once you start shaming yourself, nothing will change. You'll just go and eat the Popeye's chicken and be like, F it. That's right. And the day that I learned, this is well before Amazon bought Whole Foods, but the day that I learned that the Whole Foods CEO was some terrible piece of shit guy who doesn't really care about he just found a way to make a buck off of the wellness groupies i was like okay yeah you you don't buy into an ideology of the anything that's a one size fits all like nobody should be on meds or nobody should be you know everybody should should be taking organics all the time i mean i'm like you know i don't know it's anytime you're right it's an all or nothing situation you're in real trouble because when that fails or when you are the exception to that, then what do you do? When you've eaten perfectly your whole life and you dropped out of a heart attack mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and people don't like that. It's a control thing, right? It's so mm-hmm. controlling. It's like, if you just do the right thing and eat the right thing and are skinny and you look the right way, you're going to just, everything's going to be fine. And that's just not the truth. We're, we're, we're all going to go. And some of us are going to go at re- in really weird, horrible, scary ways. And some of us will be 104 and just like mm-hmm. that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm interested. Do you know about this uh, football player who just died yesterday? No. Um, who died? One of, the, um, one of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers died. And um, they're saying his the cause of death is being investigated, but he died in a hotel. So we know what he oh, did. He yeah. either OD'd or, or he killed himself. Right. And the second I read this, I thought, oh, I know exactly what, I mean, I will see, but I felt one possible version of this story. He works his whole life. He trains as an athlete. He makes it into the NFL. He becomes a successful wide receiver. He makes lots of money. He was a great philanthropist. He was a great, he was 38 years old, so kind of old for the NFL. Yeah. He, he was a great mentor to many young football players. I bet you his life's ambition was to win the Super Bowl. And he did it. And then he won the Super Bowl and he said, I still feel like a piece of shit. Yep. Yep. And he died in a Homewood Suites in some town in Florida. So, and I, I, I hope, I hope if this was a suicide or an OD, I hope we don't find later that people were encouraging him to get off his psych meds. Yes. Right. You know, right. Right. Because that's what that's where these stories usually end up going. It's not this happy ending that people try to get you to believe. Yeah. No, your life is going to be better if you just do everything the natural way. No. Right. And I I think like we talk about on this podcast a lot where like if you and I had, quote, made it big as youngsters, trouble, 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 trouble. I would have been like, oh, so now I've been reinforced that all is good and I should be happy at 24 and I'm skinny and happy. And why am I so miserable? And let me go sabotage my life and kill myself. Like, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, uh,
podcast, we have the lovely Rallo Romig, originally from Detroit, and he lives in New York City, and he left the theater school, and he became a brilliant writer. Maybe he always was, but now he writes for the New York Magazine, the New Yorker, he teaches. So please welcome the very talented Rallo Romig. That, that sounds familiar. <laughs> so, Rollo, congratulations. You survived theater school. No. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know your story, but I remember it as being not great. Yeah, it was not great, no. It was, it, was a, it was a bad time. Yeah, so tell us about it. That's yeah. what I want to hear about. Well, I, I had fun with Jen. She was, she was a break point. Yes, she's great. great. The good thing about it was that it was brief because I, I was not in the first year. I was out of my misery uh, sooner rather than later. That, um, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't know if any, do, do any other uh, theater conservatories even do that anymore? Cut. Uh, no one. And that, that was odd even for DePaul to do it. That was kind of unusual, right? Yes. Because I remember going into it like, I don't think I even fully registered that going into it, that this was a pretty hardcore <laughs> restriction, you know, that like, uh, that like, and how, how many people did they cut? Like, ha- like ha- half the class or less? Well, I can't figure out, I can't totally narrow in on how many people were there on day one, but we graduated with like 22. With like 22. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember how many people started off either, but the, um, uh, maybe they cut half, like by the end, or wait, wait, was there only was there only a cut after the end of the first year or second year? And actually, we've talked to somebody who strangely did get cut after the third year. Jesus God! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like what? I know. I remember. Yes. I didn't fully take into account that reality. I just figured in that kind of like eighteen year old way that's just like, yeah, I got in, it'll be fine. I'm gonna, it's, I'm gonna swing in, and it's gonna be great. And um, I, I, I never really like thought through like uh, at least even being mentally prepared for the fact that it might not work, you know, and, and, and also just like my whole attitude towards going to a conservatory was just like, eh, this is what I want to do. So I should go to the best school and the best school equals conservatory. And uh, and, I, and I, it just wasn't like definitely was not a very considered choice, you know, in retrospect. Um, but um. But yeah, so, but, but for me, it was like, it was clear from the beginning that I was out of my league and I was, and uh, I didn't want that to be true. And I kept hoping that I was wrong, but like, you know, I, I got into theater like almost by default because it was the first thing that I really enjoyed doing and that I seemed like I was good at um, both at the same time. And uh, like, I was good at math, but I hated math. I didn't want to, yeah. um, and uh, so, so that was just what I went for. But you know, my school, my high school, had like three hundred students in it, and so yeah, I did really well in the high school music. <laughs> <laughs> but that was not like high bar, you know. It was, very, it was a very like big fish in a small pond scenario. And so, but then on the other hand, the weird thing was like. The, the drama teacher at my high school was really gung-ho and she treated us like professionals and she treated us like we were all going to go into the theater. Even though it was, it was weird. It was not a performing arts school. It was just like your normal sort of like Catholic high school. 
And, but but they, but she was like in her own universe where she was like, no, in in when you're in my shows, you are at a performing arts high school. Wow. So wait, she was she was waiting for Guffman. She was uh, Christopher Guest. <laughs> and she was great. She was wonderful. You know, and she and the funny thing is, like, there were students from my school who became very successful. Uh, in this tiny school, so like a, a couple years older than me uh, was uh, Keegan Michael Key. Oh, and, uh, and he said before that she was, and I knew him well at the time. And she said before that uh, that uh, I mean, he he said before that she was like the formative influence. Like she's the one who got him into wow. theater. Oh, this, this uh, uh, music and drama teacher, and. So, and he was really encouraging to me too, you know, like I remember like when he was already in drama school, I think at the University of Detroit. And I remember like visiting him there, he showed me around and and he was great. And like, you know, he kind of made me, I don't want to blame him, but he did make me kind of feel like I could do it. (laughs) Um, um, uh, He was wrong. But the, uh, (laughs) uh, and and also uh, uh, I, um, uh, let's see, a few years after, uh, maybe four years after me in the same high school as Kristen Bell. Um, oh, yeah, wow. um, in this tiny high school. I don't know her, uh, not to be Mariah Carey about it, but like, I, I just <laughs> never, I just never met her because she's like y- younger enough that I, that I but, um, uh, but my sister, my younger sister knew her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, so I, I went, and man, she made it so, this teacher made it so exciting too. Like, um, you know, she made us feel like what we were doing was the most important thing in the world. And she had really high standards. Like I remember the first show that I was in with her when I was a sophomore uh, was South Pacific. And it was like the night before we opened and she was really unhappy with the level of focus coming from the chorus she was <laughs> enraged about it she and she started screaming we were in the like in the gym which had been made in the auditorium you know it was all set up with folding chairs and everything already we were ready to go and she just like lost it and she just started screaming at us in the gym like uh, screaming at the chorus in particular like what are you doing wake <laughs> up the show starts tomorrow and while she's yelling she's picking up metal folding cord over her head and and just chucking them across the room. And and they're flying into other folding chairs and crashing. And she does this over and over. And like, and I remember some of the parents were like not happy about this. She was not fucking around. I was delighted. I was like, I was like, wow, this is showbiz. I want to be a part of this. Um, Amen. And um, wow. so, uh, so yeah. And um, you know, I remember I, I auditioned for a couple places. It's funny. I only I only auditioned at like uh, Midwestern schools. I was like, the coasts are kind of scary. That sounds too intense. Mm-hmm. I, I I never would have imagined that I actually live in New York City now. But um, uh, I was just a shy Midwestern farm boy. Uh, no, I'm from I'm from Detroit actually. Oh, like, but um, yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I auditioned for Carnegie Mellon and I didn't get in there. And then I auditioned for, um, uh, for DePaul and I did get in. And then like, you know, right from the beginning, like it also threw me for a loop big time that that first year is pretty much all improvisation. 
you know, mm-hmm. like that. And that was another thing, like I should have maybe found out beforehand, <laughs> like what is, what is this, what is this school's particular approach, you know, but yeah. it didn't even occur to me uh, to like try to find something like, I mean, did, did that surprise either of you that that was kind of the approach from the beginning? Yeah, I never, I didn't even know what improv was. I didn't right. even know what school I was going to. I, I don't even know how I ended up at Tapama. I'm still trying to figure out how that happened. We talk about it a lot, and I, you knew, you knew more than me. I, I, I just showed up in in ugly clothes and called it a yeah. day. And we we may never know. We may never know how we ended up there. Um, right. No matter how much we search, but the um. Uh, and I, I was so realizing you, you weren't ready. You weren't ready for improv. Oh my god! I'd never even thought about improv. I'd never done any form of improvisation in my life, and I was just like, it just really. I was not ready for it. I just wasn't. I was only used to ever working with a text, and I still think that that's just like that. I I was the kind of actor that that was my strongest suit is working with the text, and so like maybe I would have done a little better at least if I'd been to a school where that was the approach. But the uh, but anyway, that's not where I went. And, uh, but also I, I definitely feel in retrospect, like it was the wrong, uh, career move for me to go into acting, that it was a premature decision and I would have been better off going to a school. I I don't regret studying acting. I just wish I would have gone to a school where that wasn't a conservatory where Mm -hmm. I, I would have been exposed to a broader range of things, you know? Um, and you know, theater is still a part of my life. It's, uh, you know, I haven't like turn my back on it. I mean, I'll get back into that, but like, um, but you know, I just remember it being like a really hard time. I thought the classes were, I, I just like was, I felt constantly like I had no idea what I was doing and that I was doing it badly. Um, right from the first week. And, um, uh, and I also kind of, I, I want I want to ask you too. I kind of vaguely remember the atmosphere as being, um, really kind of hard, like even among our peers of it being really kind of like um, cutthroat and not very nice, but I can't even, I can't remember any specifics. So I don't know if that's actually true. I I, mean, I remember like, like my best friend at the time, Mike Smith, who was also in the program. And I, and I think he left voluntarily after the first year. I don't think he was cut. Do you remember if Mike was cut? Or was I think he, he left on his own. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he got to leave the cool way. Right. It's like, no, you don't fire me. I fire you. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, he, I remember he and I like bonding over that and complaining to each other a lot about how, like, uh, just what, just that it was like a catty and like hyper competitive atmosphere, but I actually don't remember any specifics about that. So maybe it's not even true. Wait, what do you, what do you two think? Well, I think that the warning system, remember that whole warning system, Ralph? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That creates who's on warning and who's not on warning, creates a whole level of like who's good and who's not. I think um, where you were placed, um, I, I just, yes, the answer is I agree with you that there was an unspoken um, competition that was inherent in the program that did, did not serve me well. That's what I, Gina, what about you, Gina? Yeah. So a few things. I mean, one thing that you didn't get to experience because you, you just only did the first year when you started doing shows. Yes. One person in particular 
who I won't name, was constantly going around to people being like, so how's it going? How's your show going? Oh, is it going bad? It's going bad. And that uh, prompted Don Ilko to teach us his favorite saying, which is beware the psychic vultures. <laughs> yes. And he good taught one. us Yes. And he taught us to say whenever anybody asked you when you were outside smoking or having your lunch in the pit. Pit. Is that what it's called? The pit. Uh, yeah. Coming along, coming along. That was that's what you were supposed to say <laughs> whenever anybody asked you how your show was going. And the other thing that I remember is, um, I, you know, I just it, we had to do our final projects in front of all of the teachers. And it really just, it, it became this thing of like right before that or right before auditions or right when your show was going up, it just, you would just find yourself suddenly not feeling connected to your classmates. Yeah. Like there was this day where we were doing this thing and rolling around on the floor together and all feeling good and happy. And then there was the next day when we were yeah. up for the same role. And it, it was like, there was no relation to those two totally things. it was disconnected it was like we're all supposed to be an ensemble until it comes to being picked choosed and loved and then we're cutthroat i remember just very quickly i hated yeah. audition so much that i had a fantasy that i would get hit by a car on the way to audition <laughs> that's your, that's that, the best case scenario is you get hit by a car <laughs> Oh my God, that's yeah. awful! That's oh my God, awful. that's terrible. So wait, yeah. Rollo, um, yeah, yeah. We had somebody tell a story about you and improv. What? Oh God, yes. tell me. Let's, let's see if you remember. This sounds terrifying. Tell you me, did. please. Well, it, the the story doesn't feature you as much as Peyton. <laughs> oh, Peyton! Um, yeah, yeah. You were doing an improv with Peyton. <laughs> <laughs> Tate told us the story. Oh, and great! He said Peyton was uh, he, he was Zeus. He was playing the character, <laughs> and he said he was just running, running around the stage, throwing, throwing lightning bolts. Sure, as, and, Zeus, as Zeus does. And you were what was Rollo doing? Rollo was a statue. You were a statue. You were a statue being affected by by Peyton's lightning bolts, and you were trying to understand what he was doing, and it was just like madness. But Tate, oh but Tate tells it as like it was his moment of being like, "What the fuck have I gotten myself? What am I? I'm from Iowa, and Rallo and Peyton are Greek gods, and it went on. He said it went on for like half an hour. I bet." I don't remember that one, but I, I imagine that being a statue was probably one of my one of my strongest stronger roles. Um, wow, that's funny. But yeah, so for Tate, it was more like, "What the hell is this place?" Yes, more yes, than absolutely. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. God, I remember. That's interesting what you say about like the that that atmosphere among the students, because of course we were mostly nice to each other. But I, I, that rings a bell even for me, even though I wasn't in the shows later. But just like this feeling of like superficially people are really nice to each other, but like not fully there for you. I mean, with obviously with exceptions, but like, but just the overall atmosphere of the place. I remember, this is funny. I remember um, there was one guy, I don't remember his name or anything. I, he was older than us, like a couple of years probably. 
And I remember he was just a total bully to me. I don't even remember how this came up, like just that, like uh, how we even happened to interact. But I think just like in the in the uh, in the building, you know, and I remember he would I don't remember the specifics, but I remember he would just routinely say really mean shit to me, you know, and then uh, and it was horrible, you know. And then uh, a couple of years later, you know, after I left the school, I remember I was waiting uh, for the train on the L. And it was on one of those L platforms where, like, the tracks are in between and there's a platform on the other side. And he was on the platform on the other side. And I remember him calling out to me and yelling. He had to yell because he was far away, you know, and yelling like, hey, man, hey. And I was like, oh, God, it's that bully. What's he going to say? Um, and, uh, and he was like, hey. I'm really sorry. I was so mean to you back then. Um, I was going through a really hard time and I took it out on you. But it wasn't your fault. I think you're totally fine. And, um, and I yelled, I yelled back, like, thanks, man. I, I, uh, that means a lot to me that you said that. <laughs> and like, and there's like all these strangers around. just like, that's fantastic. I, I love that. We should pioneer a new type of uh, relationship (laughs) therapy that's based on that so that you have to be standing on opposite sides of the L platform so that it's, it's, it's like enough distance. So you, you feel safe, right? You know, close enough so you could really be there. I know exactly. Cause I appreciated the distance because, you know, but but then it was also extremely public, which was, (laughs) which was also gratifying. Right. Which could be part of the therapy. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So I think if you ever realize that you were a bully uh, in an earlier stage of life, that's it's actually an excellent way of handling it. Uh, I thought it was it totally solved that problem for me. Um, So uh, when did it start to fall apart for you in that first year? Well, I mean, yeah, like it was clear that I was not doing well. And I I don't remember the specifics. I'm sure I got warned. Definitely. and, and I, you know, I just remember like Rick Murphy smirking at me a lot in a, in a way that just clearly was not a good sign. Um, and, um, uh, and then, but yet, you know, I knew I was doing bad. I, 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 I was miserable there. And yet when I got the letter saying I was cut, I just like couldn't take it in. I remember that moment really vividly, just like opening that letter and I remember reading it and it was written, it was a short letter and it was written in very plain English. And I remember reading it and thinking that I had gotten accepted to continue because my brain couldn't process it. I remember my roommate saying like, no, dude, you got cut. And I was like, oh, <laughs> um, uh, and and I just like, I had no plan B, you know, because um, it's partly just being that age too. You know, you don't have plan Bs <laughs> usually. Uh, and uh, God, I remember, you know, um, so I went, you know, I went on to go to film school at Columbia College and, you know, kind of for a similar reason as to why I went to acting school, you know, I liked movies. It was just like the vaguest reason, you know, <laughs> and, um, uh, so I went to film school, but then, um, and graduated, but I conspicuously like never made films. <laughs> so it clearly wasn't, <laughs> was not the, uh, the thing. You didn't uh, like it? I mean, you weren't interested in filmmaking? No, I just, I also just felt like I, I just, it just didn't really click for me. I, I just didn't feel like I had a natural aptitude for it, you know? And, um, uh, and that went on for a long time where I felt like I kept trying things out and just like felt like I'm just kind of crap at this. And like, and I remember like reaching a point 
like when I was in my late twenties and just feeling like I tried a lot of things and like nothing was really like, I just wasn't really good at anything. Just feeling like, wow, maybe this is my life. Maybe I'm just like a permanent sidekick <laughs> for the rest of my life. And I just won't really end up being good at anything. Um, and, uh, and it was a real blow because like, I, I mean, getting cut was like, I mean, no bones about it. It was a huge blow. And I was like, kind of just, I was very, you know, I was definitely, depressed for a long time and uh and and I think part of the reason I didn't do well in the rest of college was just like and I don't think I fully recognized that this was the reason at the time because I was kind of in denial at like what a big what a big blow that was and and I didn't get like any therapy or anything um but I did a lot of drugs (laughs) um like you know uh uh, like all through, and I don't want to blame it just on like getting cut from theater school. It was also just being young and dumb. But I remember like through, you know, what, like when I was like a teenager, I was very straight edge and kind of a goody goody. And like after, like for the rest of my college years and into my twenties, like I remember like if there was a drug, I was there. Like if anything to like, it, you had something to snort or a pill to pop, I was on it. Like, I remember finding drugs after a party and just being like, I don't know what this is, but here we go. And just like, so like, like self-destructive, definitely. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, I feel sure that there's like a connection between that behavior and, um, and just like the end is blow, you know, that I never really processed. Um, uh, So it was rough, you know, because like, you know, I mean, acting is such a rough gig in general. I mean, as you obviously know, but it's just like, it's so personal and it's so like, you are just putting yourself out there. Everyone knows this, but like, you know, uh, but yeah, it's like, it's like a hard fall. Um, and I also don't, you know, this is how I interpret it in retrospect, but I'm also like suspicious of how I remember things too, because like, and kind of the stories that I tell myself about how things went down, because like, like one thing I remember is that like, uh, the thing I always remembered was that I didn't know what I wanted to do after getting cut from the program. Um, I wanted to take a year off from school just to figure things out, but that my parents pressured me to continue college Cause I want cause they wanted me to just get it done. And, and, and this is what I believed had happened for many years. And then like just a few years ago, I came across like a letter that my father had written me at that time. And, um, uh, and he was like, well, you know, like your mother and I keep telling you, we really wish you'd take a year off to figure things out, but you seem determined to continue with school. So, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. I was like, what? Oh, so the exact opposite of the story that I told myself, well, he's, I just been blaming my father all this time for like, you know, but it was actually me. And it's like, but because of that, I thought it was such a great lesson though. Of just like, wow. Like I was like, Jesus, how many other things do I, th- I'm, am I positive went down a certain way? And they, and they, and actually maybe the exact opposite is the truth. Yeah. You know? It's fascinating yeah. because we talk about this. There is a fugue state that happens. Yeah. For, for, you're not alone in this where at yeah. least for me, I had, I have thought for years that certain things happen. And then, especially during that period between the period of like eight, 16 years old and 30 years old, where I have told myself stories about the way shit went down, starting at DePaul that I don't think are true, but 
it felt yeah. true at the time. And that's the yes. actual real thing. But it's a trip to look back and be like, wait, what happened? I, oh my gosh. So it's, it's an interesting thing. It's a phenomenon. Yeah, tell me, Gina. Yeah. Oh, well, something that occurs to me that's really interesting about your story is, and, and you can correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but my impression from what you're saying is, you know, in high school, you stumbled into this drama program with this very charismatic teacher, yeah. which caused you to stumble into the decision to go to a conservatory, which caused you to get cut and then stumble into going to film school. But we're we're burying the lead here. You're a very <laughs> successful writer and writing is a set of skills for which you cannot be anything but intentional and aware. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Sure, and focused. Sure. So you made a real left turn somewhere. I did. Well, I'll tell you how that came about. You know, like I was um uh, I was, so like, like I said, like when I was in my late twenties, I, I was starting to think like, maybe I won't be good at anything ever. And then just kind of out, you know, out of the blue, I remember I was reading, uh, the New York times magazine and I was like, wow, this would be really cool to like, to do this for a living, like write articles for this magazine. And, um, uh, and I just started thinking about like, and I was, I'd also started traveling a little more like world travel. I was thinking like, man, this is the best. How can I, how can I get paid to do this? And those kind of things came together, like reading the New York times magazine and like the New Yorker magazine and, and, and thinking about traveling and thinking like, wow, maybe journalism is a way to do it. I, I, but I, the thing is I hadn't been doing any writing at all. Like, like I, you know, I grew up in a very bookish household. Like my father worked for a publishing company. My mother was a school librarian, but I, I did not have any practice of writing. And so, but, but I decided like, you know, I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to try journalism. But I, and I felt like since I was coming to it very late, I would be starting journalism school. I, I was like, I didn't start journalism school till I was after 30. I, but I, I felt like I should go to journalism graduate school to kind of speed up the process and get a jump start, you know, in grad, the grad school program, just like a year and a half long, um, because I was coming to it so late, you know, and, uh, but I went into journalism school, never having published anything and really having no serious writing practice. So, so in a way, like it was kind of, it, I, I didn't learn much from the theater school experience. Cause again, I just leapt into something without really knowing what I was doing, but this time it just really, it was the opposite in every way where I completely thrived in journalism school. And I was like, uh, like at the end of it, they gave me an award for best students in the class. And they said, and the teacher said, never has there been such a unanimous decision among the teachers of who should get this award. And I mentioned that not to brag, but just to like, say like, this was just such the opposite of the theater school experience, you know? And so I was like, wow, okay. I, I actually am good at something finally, you know? And then, you know, and, and it takes, and in a funny way, like, you know, journalism is kind of similar, like similarly difficult uh, of a pr profession uh, as acting. Cause like, you know, I'm a freelancer still and you're, you know, it's, you're always hustling you're um uh you're always trying to get gigs you're usually getting rejected um you're um it's very precarious it's highly competitive you're putting like your very personal self on the line with everything you do so it's actually really similar in a lot of ways 
but then I, I, I found like, because I feel like I'm just like competent at it. I've never felt freaked out about that. I've always felt like I will continue to make this work, you know? Uh, so, and I, I think that's such an important thing that like, I, I mean, we have such like, I feel like that's not at all unusual that it takes people until their thirties, even later to figure out what is their thing and what they're going to do with their life. If ever, if ever, if, if ever, if ever, absolutely. And they, and you don't even have to have like a thing that, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, but, but like, and maybe your thing is like, and maybe your thing isn't even like a career thing, but it's some other aspect of life. That's just like what your, what makes it, what makes it good for you, you know? And, um, uh, and you know, th- there's such like a cult of youth in, in, uh, in our culture and such a cult of, of, of professional success in this really like narrow sense that like, um, uh, you know, there's so much emphasis on early success. It's not how it typically happens. I mean, the reason why they have, the reason why early success gets lauded so much is because it's, it's exceptional. You know, but we come the message that so many of us take and especially I think young people take away from that is that uh, early success is the only right way to do it or else you're just bad or slow. You know, right. right. And, and, And what I've learned from like working in news is that what gets what gets the stories that gets published are the unusual ones. And then we come to think that they are typical because they get published, you know. But it's actually the opposite. They get published because they're news, because they're unusual, you know, and that like it's just as often. It's amazing how many like writers I admire also started uh, later than I did, you know, uh, at, at, at writing and at doing it professionally. Um, uh, and, I, and I'm sure it's true in many professions. It doesn't stop for every profession. It's not true of gymnasts, but like, you know, uh, <laughs> but uh, child but, you know, stars. Yeah, right. child stars. Yeah, it's hard to be a child star. I'm still hoping to be a child star. It's not working out. I believe in you, Jed. I think you can do it. Me too. Me too. You've got that button nose and just those yes, rosy red cheeks. Yeah. You know. Well, you're talking to two people who are coming to writing very late in life. Yeah. I mean, that's what this whole venture is, you know. Yeah, totally. Both- we both stumbled around with performing and trying to make a living at with what we went to school for. And yeah. we both, you know, found it very difficult. And uh, it, yeah. So it took us till 45 to, or 44, I guess we were technically. Yeah. Um, but better late than never. I know. And like, you know, you don't do one thing your whole life. That's not how it works. We, you know, we, you know, if you're lucky, you live for a long time and you do different things. I don't think I'll do this. I, I don't want to do the same thing I'm doing now forever. I want to try other things too, you know? Um, how did you, yeah. can, I, can I ask you a question? Um, yeah. That is, that is, uh, how did you stop doing, do, doing the drugs? Oh God. It was just kind of gradual. I'm very lucky that I didn't get addicted to anything. I, I, I just, and now I'm like super sober, not even by choice. I just really lost interest in it. I, it wasn't like even a conscious decision. But um, I think just as my life improved, you know, I just like didn't want to anymore. Um, yeah, but that's I, I feel very lucky for that, that I never had. I, I also just I drank to a like great excess, you know, uh, like I remember re- I remember repeatedly in my 20s, like passing out in the bathrooms of bars, you know, mm-hmm. Um uh, not good, not good stuff. 
Um, and, um, uh, and now like, it just, it, it just holds no interest for me. And that's been for a while, but it, but it was really just kind of a gradual thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm lucky that way. Like I, I also kind of, I quit smoking that way too, where I didn't even decide. I just kind of like tapered off, which is weird, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah. That's an anomaly. I think yeah. most people struggle with it a lot more. Definitely. Than yeah. Thank absolutely. goodness. But thank goodness you didn't have, you know, a near death experience is what it what usually takes for people to give up doing drugs. It could, it could have gone really bad. Yeah. So, yeah. so that, that, that so part you, was just you, luck. Yeah. You went to Columbia, which a lot of, we've talked to a lot of people who that that's a very common pathway after leaving the theater school is to finish the degree at Columbia. That's and almost everybody we've talked to has said, you know, it was such a better fit for them. And, yeah. and it, they were so grateful that they got cut because the Columbia was the right place, but it, it's not that it, it doesn't sound like it was the wrong place for you. It just wasn't the field that you really were meant to be in. I just, it was Columbia was fine and my teachers were great and all that. But, you know, the whole thing happened to me. The whole rest of my college years occurred in a haze of marijuana smoke. And like the I I, I just wasn't really engaged. And so the right place for me finally. And when I really kind of like and I always regretted that I always regretted that I wasted my college years is how I saw it. And that I didn't really like have an actual college experience because I was like, you know, in high school, I was like a straight A student in college. I got pretty, you know, at Columbia College, I actually got pretty poor grades and I, I could have easily gotten good grades if I'd been engaged. And, um, but like finally going to graduate school years later was kind of, that was when I belatedly found my thing. You know, what I, I was, you know, recently I read, uh, this novel by, uh, Somerset Maugham, um, of human bondage. It's a terrible title, but it's actually a really great book. Uh, have, have either of you read this book or, or any? Um, I started to read yeah. it about like 20 years ago. I don't think I yeah. finished it. You know, I wonder if it, it's, it might be the kind of book that hits you better when you're a little older. Cause it's like, it's a, like a coming of age story. And he wrote the first draft of it. Um, it's very autobiographical. And he wrote the first draft of it um, when he was like right after the events had happened. And it was really raw and he sent it around to many publishers and they all rejected it. And then he kind of stuck it in a drawer and then like 20 years later, pulled it out and totally rewrote it. But he had like all those raw emotions from that time. He got them down because you forget all that stuff. You forget all the specifics and, all, and the way things actually felt. But then he had like the distance of experience and he, re- he rewrote it. It's very unusual because he like two drafts, 20 years apart and you can kind of feel how both are there. And like he tells the story of how like the main character of the book is um, uh, what really wants to be an artist and is really fervent about it. And he goes to art school and studies with artists, but he's just not cut out for it. And 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 then his life, he just kind of stumbles through life and and uh, and it's not going well for him until finally he realized what he wants to do is be a doctor. And then he finally flourishes at that at the end. And I was like, wow, this really feels kind of like the story. I really related to it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um uh the uh j- just kind of the the journey this character goes through there um but but yeah you know the um it's funny cuz the with the theater stuff like you know i i was thinking about you know do i regret go like going to the theater school period do i regret going into acting at all i mean i don't think like I learned that much from trying to be an actor specifically. And obviously like going to the theater school and getting cut was a terrible experience. 
I'm glad I got cut in a weird way because like I would have just continued, of course. And then it, it just wouldn't have worked out <laughs> in the long run, I, I think. And, um, uh, but even because I got through it, even that bad experience of getting cut and then dealing with it over years, I do think it kind of toughened me up, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Or like, well, I, I'll tell you one thing that it helped me learn was like to, to really do things for myself, you know? Uh, and like, like, like I, I mean, in the sense of like do things because they bring me joy and not because, and not to try to like, uh, please an institution or please, um, uh, you know, a, a professor or whatever, you know? And, and that was something I learned in a different way. Like one of the, one of the many things I tried in my twenties that I was not good at was uh, playing in, playing in bands. I, I played like keyboards and, and uh, mostly in bands. I was not good. That was another thing where like, I tried to learn, uh, play piano for many years and just never got good at it. It was so annoying just like to put all those years of practice into playing the piano and just continue to suck. You know, like that was, yeah. such a, that was such a bummer. But the, um, but anyway, I played in bands where, it, you know, the whole band sucked enough where it didn't really matter that I also sucked. Anyway, <laughs> the, the thing is we were bad. I, in my, in my opinion, the, you know, we were not good bands, but you know how it is when you're a performer, you get off stage and people say, that was amazing. That was fucking incredible. You were great. And like, that's just how it is because people, it's awkward. People know what fragile egos performers have. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're they're right there in front of you. You don't want to insult them. So, of course, you're always going to say. And just having people say that to me over and over, getting off stage from, like, uh, a performance in the band, knowing it was bad, getting, like, praise to high heaven for it, I just, like, learned to just disregard praise or, or mm-hmm. recognition. You know what I mean? Just, like, this is that, – that this is, like, not what you're – when people praise you, it's just, it's usually not even sin- sincere or authentic. So you better be doing it for a different reason, you know? Absolutely. And, and, um, and, and I think I, when I went into acting, I really was doing it for applause and I was doing it because of like, also just kind of like the cult of celebrity too. Like I remember fantasizing at, like when I was like in my late teens I remember having extensive repeated fantasies of like what I would say on talk shows, but (laughs) but not, but not having fantasies about making things. Do you know what I mean? And that should have been a side. Like you're (laughs) like, you should be dreaming about the things you want to make, you know, and not about like, yeah. Talking to. Yeah. It's it's the cult of celebrity. That's the cult of celebrity. I mean, that's just, you know, I, I, my mind was blown. We were talking to someone who was sharing just about being on stage and having this moment of, um, of really feeling the audience and feeling like this, this is the reason I do this. And I've never had that moment ever. I don't think I've ever had a moment. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, I should be doing something else. Like, look, it doesn't mean I'm bad or she's good, but all it means is, oh, this is not. And so what I hear from you is like, this is not the quality that I'm looking for in my life of hearing that I'm good at something that I don't feel I'm good at. But it sounds like with your writing, you found that sort of, um, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, it's like an authentic thing that you're doing that um, feels like you're on the right path. I just think that is so 
wonderful that you found your writing. I, I, I just, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that, and that, that is how it feels, you know, and I think you, I think you know it when you're doing it and it's not like, it's not like, um, all praise is meaningless to me. Of course I, I like to be complimented and like, but it's like, it, it's only meaningful if like, like I find it meaningful when I, I read or overhear some praise that someone is saying and I, and they didn't know I was going to hear it, you know, like that's meaningful. Or like if someone writes me an email about something I wrote and it's clearly like really specifically like, like this meant a lot to me for whatever reason, you know, then that's really great, you know, and that is actually very encouraging um, and meaningful. Uh, but not this kind of like, auto- but like if a friend of mine says, Oh, I read your article. It was great. That means nothing. My right. mother. No, <laughs> my mother loves everything. I'm just like, anytime, anytime I do anything and my, and my mother tells me, she's like, okay, mom. Yeah. I'm sure you loved it. I'm, I'm sure she does. I, I have everything this, my nine-year-old does. But I have this experience all the time. I'm part of this uh, performance group and, um, and I'll do something and I'll feel really proud of it and I'll get all this praise. And then somebody yeah. else will do something that'll be crap and they'll get all this praise. And I'm like, <laughs> right. Oh, right, right, right. Oh. Okay. I was, I was, I was shooting for the wrong thing here, but you know, I want yeah. to circle back to something about yeah. stumbling into acting, which is that I think, and I have a, a, a child in high school now, so okay. I, I'm, I'm remembering it a little bit, but um, I think what happens to a lot of people and maybe even especially boys and men, if you, aren't necessarily like fitting in with the thing that is the big thing at your school. If you go, you know, if it's sports or if it's whatever it is, it, it, and you don't like there, there's just this leftover category, which ends up being always the theater department, the the drama group. And so socially, I mean, I went to high school with Jessica Chastain, but she was, like the only person besides me that I know of who's still pursuing this. Mostly it was people who were being rejected socially in other spheres and found a, 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 a home of their peers. And that turned into, I must like theater. Exactly. I think that's an excellent point. And theater is wonderful for kids like us. Who, who are who are in that category? I mean, it's an it's an amazing thing, and that's what actually that's what got me through high school. It's funny that it's what got me through high school, and then it's what ruined college. You know, yeah, yeah. it's so funny that way because it like really because uh, I was I was very I was super miserable in middle school. You know, and like absolutely uh, theater was my saving grace in high school, and so like what you know, God, it's it is such it is such a gift to so many kids, but like. Yeah, but not everyone should go go into professional. Right. I mean, I yeah. think that there's there's a and I think about this with writing and other things. Like if if you don't fit in, theater should not be the only option for those of us. And then we True. should try to make a living at it just because yeah. it was a place that accepted us into it's like let's give kids more options. Like if the conservatory, yes. like how about writing? How about directing how about producing like or or other stuff i I mean it just speaks to um 
the narrow, the narrowness that we have, like you were saying, this really narrow scope about what's successful and then what to do for college and what to do for a career. Just because, I mean, this is really crass, but just because I'm good at blowjobs doesn't mean I should be doing them all the time. Do you know what I'm right. saying? Or, like, yeah. that's, or professionally. It, or professionally. <laughs> no. So, so I think there's like this broad spectrum. And, and while theater is great to house us, us misfits it doesn't mean we should yes. go and try to go and be on you know all my children no that's a I, whole know, other... I know but we now, didn't know. Funny, though, i i met a lot of i met a lot of kids in journalism school who like the school paper or the school yearbook actually was that thing for them and it's funny like i those things weren't even on my radar in high school they had no yeah, interest for, for me but like um uh and then even now like like the kind of journalism I do, like I, I am a journalist, but like, I'm not interested in news. Like I, you know, I don't really, I kind of hate news actually in a way. The, mm-hmm. uh, but the, uh, I, I, I write, like everything I write about is ne- it's never news. Um, it's always just things that I, I I'm interested in writing about. Um, do you but, write um, about theater? I saw on your website, you do yeah. have some things about theater. Is that when you were at, when you said earlier, you're still involved in theater? Is that what yeah. you're writing about it? Yeah. So, you know, I did like, I kind of, I got back into theater in a couple of different ways where first, after I moved to New York city, um, I, for a few years, I fell into stage managing for like downtown theater companies for, for, um, for just like weird downtown theater companies. And I I loved it. It was really fun. And it just happened. Like I went to some show by this group. They, uh, they've unfortunately folded now, but this company called the national theater of the United States of America. And, and, uh, and they, they, yeah, they're not, they weren't the actual national theater, <laughs> but the, um, they were amazing. They were so delightful and funny and, and inventive. And, uh, and, and I, I remember just seeing one of their shows and just being like, God, I just have to be a part of what these people are doing in some way. And I just dropped by their theater one day and said, is there anything you need help with? Cause I just want to be a part of it. And they were like, we need a stage manager. And I was like, okay, great. What's that? um yeah. uh what does a stage manager do and then they told me and then i just like um uh got got it got into that and then um and and did stage managing for other shows for a few years i loved it but i knew i didn't want to do it professionally but it was a lot of fun i got to know a lot of i got to know the theater scene here really well especially kind of the downtown scene and um uh doing the weird stuff and um and got to know a lot of, yeah, just theater professionals here. And then later, when I started working at The New Yorker, I was working as a copy editor at The New Yorker magazine right after journalism school. And I overheard that um, uh, that this one of the regular theater reviewers was leaving. It actually was, uh, uh, it happened to be Brandon uh, Jacobs Jenkins, who, um, who's gone on to become an enormously successful playwright. He was He was leaving in order to uh to kind of devote himself full time to playwriting mm-hmm. and um uh and he kind of focused on in his theater reviewing for uh, on the on the downtown stuff you know so they had this gap there and um uh and this is just like this is just the little capsule reviews in the front of the magazine in the section called uh, goings on about town and mm-hmm. so I, I said, you know, I just overheard that he was leaving. And so I went to the editor and I said, hey, you know, I actually have some background theater and I actually know that scene pretty well. Um, do, would, would you be interested in giving me a try? And she was like, sure. And then I've been doing it for like 10 years, you know. 
And, uh, and it's so great. I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of life is like going to these. It's funny. I only ever write these little capsule reviews that are like 130 words long. I've never written a full length theater review. I wouldn't even know how to. I'm just used to this format. I love this format because it's like it's like kind of a game of like how much information can you fit into a paragraph, you know? And like, um, and so it's just so fun just to go like go. I see a couple shows, or I did until the pandemic. Saw a couple shows a weekend, and uh, and just like it's just such a great way to be engaged with New York City, and it's like a really fun writing practice. Uh, and so, yeah, obviously it never would have happened if I hadn't have been into theater beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, so that in a roundabout way, you know, that um, it paid off in this. And it's funny because like no teenager is like, I want to be a theater critic. You know? <laughs> right, like, right, right. Like, uh, no, like I, I want to meet that kid who does want to be a theater critic. But it turns out that it's that it's uh, that it's actually extremely fun. Of course it is. It's great. Yeah. Um, it's a great job. How did you get in? Uh, it looks like you spent a lot of time in India and yeah. written a lot about India. How did that come about? My uh, just through marriage, actually. My um, uh, my my wife is from India, and we you know go every year for family trips. And it was around the time when I was really kind of getting my my freelance career going. Yeah, I just you know when we were going there, I just noticed that there were a lot of great things to write about, and then so I started pitching stories to. Uh, you know, especially the New York Times Magazine, seeing if they and they just they've yeah taken taken all the ideas. It's been great. Um, and you're working on a book about it now. Exactly. So now I'm working on a book. So I'm just kind of deep into that right now, and it's kind of expanding on one of the stories that I did for the New York Times Magazine. It's a pretty grim story about the murder of a journalist um, in uh, in Bangalore uh, a few years ago. Um, so it's a book length version but it's like, the book's not just grim it's like kind of about her whole world and like the kind of like uh really vibrant like literary world that she came out of too um so yeah is this your first time writing a book for definitely first time writing a book and that's um and i always kind of wanted to get into that so this is uh and, I, and i'm really enjoying the process it's good it's really hard work but it's um uh i like it i like it a lot it's do you have like a dedicated practice? I mean, a routine a system for how you write? Yeah, you know, it's really fallen off. Like I've been, you know, like everyone so distracted this year that everything's kind of fallen apart. I, I asked my editor for a, a year extension <laughs> um, and she said no problem. Um, uh, and but yeah, you know, I write every day and there's and there's just a ton of research, too. So I've just got mountains of books that I'm weeding through. It's kind of like, I, I think of it like cooking, like, you know, like, like making, like reducing a stock, like you take all these vegetables and like, uh, and you're just like cooking it down, cooking it down, cooking it down until like, and so I, I feel like I have all these like hundreds of books that I'm reading through, or at least reading in part and all these inter- like countless interviews of like hundreds of thousands of words and all these, just all this reporting I did, all this stuff. And it's just like cooking it down, cooking it down. Um, yeah, until it's a book, hopefully. Boz, I don't think I told you this, but Rollo had written to us saying, you know, something about if we ever wrote a book using yeah. this material. And I was like, oh, what a good idea. We should great. do that. We should write cool. a book using yeah. this material or something, I know. something related to this. That would Definitely. be 
Well, we'll definitely have to call you up if we decide I, I to mean, do that. Yeah. I mean, it's been such a pleasure to hear you and to see you and to know that, like, it, it does give me great hope to know that we can stumble through, really. We, and yeah. We're lucky. We're lucky in that we ha- we can stumble through and still make it. But, like, that, if there's anyone out there that's listening that's like, man, I am not good at anything. That is not true. The thing is you no. just haven't found the thing. And the Absolutely. thing hasn't the thing hasn't found you. And I, I think that's what I'm going to take from our talk is that like, you don't know when the thing is going to find you and you'll find your thing. And the cult of youth is a myth and a lie. Yeah. And we, we got to get over it. Cause that's not right. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, I, I feel like this is the best time of my life. And, um, and, and no one, no one tells you that when you're in a teenager or in your twenties that like you actually, there's actually a good chance you'll, be loving your life when you're in your 40s or even your 50s or whatever you're, you're just like 40s ugh. Yeah. uh but like but i think it's true for a lot of people that they like go ahead no no you finish no I, I was saying even if you are good at something when you're younger it's just such a period of like insecurity and just like oh god i don't miss that time at all not not just because the theater thing didn't work out it's just got such an awkward time you know Absolutely. So awkward. I'm what I'm going to take away related to what boss said is, you know, if you're finding that you aren't, you know, feel like you're not good at anything, uh, uh, look at, take another look at the way you got to do the thing that you're doing that you feel you're not good at, you know, is it just because it can be something so fleeting, like, yes, you know, I remember at one, one time at one point in my life, my dad said, you should be a lawyer. And even though I wanted to be a an actor since the time I was five years old, there was a brief moment when I wasn't doing well with this. I thought, well, I guess I guess my own. I literally said to myself, I guess my only other choice is to be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the only thing that stopped me from doing it was the GRE. I did oh my not god! Yeah, yeah. Take the right, GRE, right. and I knew I would not be able to pass the LSAT. But like, you know, so examine, consider the source of where you, you know, the thing that you've been pursuing, why are you doing that? And maybe, because maybe you need to pay more attention to, you know, what you like instead of what other people tell you you're good at. Yeah. And, you know, there are so many things that people are doing now that did not exist when we were podcasting, did not exist when we, uh, it was far from existing when when this was not like a yeah a thing it wasn't a thing and now it is and now we can have people like you on which i'm so i'm just so grateful that we had you on because it's like it just gives me hope there are there are just it's just hopeful really and i yeah. need I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. Follow us on Instagram at Undeniable Writers or on Twitter at Undeniable W-R-I-T-1. That's Undeniable Write without the E-1. Thanks! Thanks!